0: Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. You're about to listen to my interview with Esther Derby on her brand new book, Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change, Micro Shifts, Macro Results. You can find the book on amazon.com or you can go to Esther's website, estherderby.com. I hope you enjoy the interview.
1: And I think I think it's super important not to make people wrong and not to make people you know, tell them what they have been doing is stupid. I mean, that just makes it harder for anybody to change.
0: Hey, this is Dave Breyer. Welcome to The Reluctant Agilist. Today is Labor Day. I'm not sure when you're going to get, here, get to hear this, but today is Labor Day and Esther Derby is taking some time out of her holiday. And Izzy is here as well. Esther, thank you and Izzy for being here for the podcast.
1: Well, it's our pleasure. And I, I actually hope that Izzy will be quiet.
0: I'd like I, to hear from Izzy. I'm curious well, about Izzy's opinions about change. Oh, <laughs> but yes, we'll see what happens. He has
1: opinions on everything.
0: Um... So there's a bunch of things we're going to talk about, but the main thing is the new book. So how do you describe the new book?
1: Um, I would say this is a guide for people who uh, need to bring change to their organizations, whether or not they have change management in their title. If you do have change management in your title, I think this is another set of, um, ideas and tools you can bring to bear but a lot of us a lot of us are involved in change in our organizations and don't have that in our title right so I think it's I think it's useful for anyone who is um, trying to make things better on their team I think it's useful for managers who need to look at their system and figure out what they might do differently I think it's useful for anyone who's trying to bring a new set of practices or processes or mindset into an organization
0: okay so it doesn't have to be like a full-blown massive company it could be like a a volunteer or like a small volunteer organization or something like that would work
1: i i think that uh the heuristics in this book would be helpful to any uh any group of humans who are trying to bring some kind of change
0: okay and so the book is called seven rules for positive change we'll get to heuristics in a minute but this is your first book in 13 years 13 years. And, and the last one did very well because that's one of your the things that everyone talks about you. They always talk mm-hmm. about retrospective. Um, so the mm-hmm. book that you wrote with Diana, Agile Retrospective, is still the standard that everyone turns to for how to run an Agile retrospective. But this book is not locked in specifically on Agile, right?
1: No, it would be useful um, for many sorts of change, complex change. Okay. Right. So I, you know, if you're doing something really obvious, like changing the signage in your company, you know, you don't necessarily have to deal with this. Although people can be very attached to their company name. So, yeah. you know, there's going to be something, something you need to deal with there. Um, but it really is focused on the sorts of change that we're doing in, in organizations that involve people thinking differently, that involve people learning
0: and letting go. Um,
1: and letting go.
0: Okay, so you mentioned heuristics a moment ago. How how do you define that?
1: A uh, heuristic is like a rule of thumb. Okay. It's a it's a guide to problem solving. It doesn't um, it doesn't uh, uh, guarantee success, but it will give you a way forward.
0: Okay, so how how does that play into the idea of wanting to change an organization i mean you're talking about experiments i think a lot of people would especially if it's something simple like a simple change like transforming to agile you would just say change and everybody should just switch
1: <laughs> that does seem to be a widespread belief <laughs> or you just it's go to a two-day why class Why don't have
0: jobs right
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah let's go to a two-day class and then um all will be well, yes. actually, that reminds me of uh, i don 't know if this story is in this book i can 't remember some of the ones i' left out and some of the ones i put in but i I got a call from a a company that was struggling with their agile transition, and they had sent everybody to a uh, i think it was a three day training, not just a two day training
0: they went three. all in
1: hmm all in <laughs> and they sent a lot of people and so this was good that they were they wanted to give people a sort of baseline but then they declared that agile was now the way they did work and any changes thereafter must have <laughs> be approved by their software engineering process group so they they solidified things when they knew the least yeah. not when they knew the least but when they knew very very little wow so so yeah it's 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 uh, you know i think we are still you know suffering from this uh big old hangover of mechanistic thinking where we, we view our organizations as machines. And that leads us to think that, oh, we can just install a change. Yeah. Or so a it's person. just like, <clears throat> yeah, a change or a person just, you know, you, you you swap out a part. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not really like that.
0: So you've spent a lot of time since the last book working, you've seen a lot of different things. What is, what are some of the main themes for you with change in terms of like, these are the things that you see that other people are just flat out not catching or not not kind of like understanding need to happen.
1: A couple things that I think are often overlooked. Um one is what you want to retain. People okay. sort of sort of assume that they're going to change things but they don't think about what are the really the essential things they want to retain no matter what else changes. Okay. And often people lose touch with things that were really important to the organization or important to the people in the organization. And the other is that um, people forget that they are not um, working on a blank slate. You know, whatever they do, um, they're putting it on top of existing uh, traditions, tr- reward structures, policies, patterns of relationship, and whatever the new thing is, is going to interact with that in often unpredictable ways.
0: Wow. Okay. So one time I was talking with Sally and Freudenberg about being a cst and i was explaining that you know my background with project management and i felt like my job was to scoop out the waterfall and replace it with agile and she explained she, the way she said it was when you rescue people from cults you can't take out what the cult put in you hmm. have to find a way to swamp it with other stuff so is that is that kind of the same thing except when you if i if i'm putting agile into the brain of a waterfall person they're going to connect somehow. There's going to be some altering of the, of the agile, right?
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's what people do. They, when they learn something new, they hang it onto an existing cognitive framework. Okay. That's just what happens. And, and over time, a, a cognitive framework can change. The way people think about the world and see the world and see problems can change. Uh, but I think there are ways to bridge that so um, Michelle Sliger's book is a really great example of a of a book that bridges those two ways of thinking. She, okay. she doesn't she doesn't come at it and say, "Oh, whatever you learned, uh, you know, was managing wrong. waterfall pro- projects is stupid, bad, and wrong." She says you had a, a set of really important concerns, and and they are important. And here's how we would address them in Agile. Okay. And I think, I think it's super important not to make people wrong and not to make people, you know, tell them what they have been doing is stupid. I mean, that just makes it harder for anybody to change. Yeah. Right? It makes them less likely to listen to you. It lessens your credibility. You know, people feel dismissed. I mean, it's, you know, it's unhelpful in any number of ways
0: so i taught a class last week and it was with i mean the, the oldest person in the class was five years out of college and most of them were like a year and one of the hard it was one of the hardest classes i've ever had because there was nothing to hang it on they had no waterfall they had no agile they had no formal process training of any kind mm-hmm. um in in the work that you've done is it going to be easier to bring change to some to like uh, to that blank slate
1: It's an, an it-depends question.
0: Okay. So
1: I, I, I had a conversation um, several years ago with a friend of mine who uh, was involved in introducing Agile into um, companies in Finland. Okay. And he actually didn't, you know, he didn't actually learn it in um, software. He learned about Agile working in a, um, a movie production shop. Wow. Where Where the, and they didn't call it agile, but it was the way they worked. you know okay. they'd storyboard stuff and then they'd build stuff and then they'd you know get Fairly. feedback on yeah. it and change it and 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 so it was iterative and it was incremental and he brought that sort of thinking um, you know and recognized that oh it, it, this is what agile is, so um I think that um it doesn't have to be more difficult.
0: So this person came to it from a background of film production, but they still yeah. had something to hang it on. That I guess the struggle for me was there was nothing to, I, and I hadn't thought about this before, but Agile is a response. I mean, I knew it was a response to another way of working, but if they have nothing to connect it to, it's really hard to explain why the manifesto is so important and all these other things if there's nothing arguing against it in the beginning. Mm.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So then I would probably just start with simulations and talk about um, how certain sorts of, of work are amenable to defining everything up front and then
0: Other you know, one's going not so through much. it
1: once and others aren't so much. So okay. I would I would use simulations to give people some experiences to hang things off of.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you. And I want to mention Michelle's book. So when you brought up Michelle's book, I was so busy looking for the title to get, not mess up the title that I forgot to mention it.
1: Oh, well, mention it now.
0: So Michelle Slager and Station Broderick's book, The Software Project Manager's Bridge to Agility, is, I'm just going to say in my own way, kind of mansplaining Agile to project managers.
1: Well, I don't think, I, I don't think of it as
0: mansplaining. Well, not in a, but not in a negative way. It's, it's yeah. explaining it in the language of, that they'll find familiar.
1: Yeah, so I would say it's an example of cognitive empathy.
0: Okay, that sounds because better they, than mansplaining. Because
1: they are <laughs> it's a lot better than mansplaining. I've been mansplained too, and it's not very fun. Um, <laughs> I get old-splained too sometimes too. That's also an honor. Um, and lady-splained too. Yeah, anyway. Um, so cognitive empathy is... is understanding how other people, um, approach the world and how they think about the world. And, and when you take the effort to have that level of empathy, um, you can talk to things in a way that is easier for other people to relate to, um, understand and make that sort of bridge. You know, people think of empathy as emotional empathy, which I also think is important, Yeah, but, um, But there is, you know, there there are more than one kind of empathy.
0: I'm just thinking about what you said about old people old explaining things to you, and the fact that
1: no, no, it's it's young people old explaining.
0: Well, that's what I mean. Like I know I do that to my father sometimes. I don't, (laughs) but I know I do. Um, But I also know that I have a really hard time connecting with some of the younger generations when I'm in class, and I Mm. tend to talk to them the way that I talk to everyone else, and I. Don't have empathy for the fact that their experiences are not like mine, and that they don't think about the world the way I do, and that that they come mm-hmm. from a completely different place mm-hmm. to all this stuff.
1: yeah, well, i um I have a, a a client in the Dominican Republic, and most of the people that work there are right out of university. You know, that's when the the, when they start, they're right out of university. I mean, they have people now who have work experience because they've been working there. They occasionally hire people from you know who have ten years of work experience, but the vast majority of people who uh, are there are coming right out of university. Okay. And what I try to look for is the stuff they do understand. And my experience with that group of people is that or that particular company and the people they hire is that they, um, they're really sophisticated about um, peer relationships and peer coaching. Okay. And they get stuff about um, working in teams that I don't see as much in people who have spent, you know, 20 years or 15 years or even 10 years in the workplace
0: in traditional
1: Yeah, being focused on individual jobs and individual rewards and individual tasks and Wow, so so I I tend to look for what what they have and See if I can build on that you No, know, I, I mean I, I, This reminds me of all the negative stuff. I hear about Millennials and I actually, you know, oh, they—they they want feedback, they want responsibility, they want meaning. So I think those are fantastic things to want. Yeah. You know, and so and those are things you can build on. Um, you know, I think I think a lot of the people who um, view those as negative are just a little um, annoyed with themselves that they put put out those things for so long. Yeah. You know, it's a little resentment. Oh, how come they get those things? And I didn't ask for them for
0: 40 years. So I had a millennial say something to me that completely transformed my view. I mean, like in one sentence, it was like everything broke in half. She's just, we were doing a podcast and she said, we're not the ones that gave ourselves all those trophies. And then I was like, oh God, we did that to ourselves. (laughs) like we're mad at them because they're over entitled and we're the ones that cost it.
1: Well, I don't think they're over entitled.
0: Yeah, I shouldn't. That's because I,
1: I mean, I think, I think people are entitled to have feedback about what they're doing. They're entitled to responsibility. They're entitled to be, you know, and to to have meaning in their work.
0: Yeah, you're right. You
1: know, and, and not put up with the kind of crap that was just accepted when I first entered the workforce.
0: Yeah. I didn't, what I said over entitled, I meant in the stereotypical way. Yeah. Okay. You keep fixing all the things I'm saying, Esther. I'm I oh, have I'm to sorry. do a lot of editing. Oh. <laughs> all right. So I want to ask you about two things in the front of the book that really struck me. Um, okay. So in the beginning of the book, you talk about two lessons for change. The first one was that any given change, it says may be positive for some and negative for others. I mean, that, Yep. In addition to saving the good, that to me seems like something a lot of people would not remember.
1: I it it just seems so self evident to me, and maybe it's because I, you know I saw that in with one of the very first programs I wrote as a professional programmer. It made the guy who had to use it miserable.
0: Yeah, that's so, a great story. That you, the story yeah. for those of you who haven't seen the book yet, the, the story is explained in the beginning of the book before. Um, or right around this section where you where you cover this but yeah do you find that people don't have awareness of that that they just assume like oh well, everyone's going to love the change
1: well because they've thought about it a lot and they think it's a good idea or they've experienced it and it's made a positive change for them um, you know, a lot of people, the first time they experience working on an Agile team, it's like transformational for them because they didn't realize work could be fun. They didn't realize, you know, it didn't have to be a slog of integration hell at the end. And so they're they're very enthusiastic about it. Um, and yet, for someone else, it may mean a loss of routine. It may mean a, a, a sense of losing control. It may mean they you know they have to make all sorts of adjustments in the way they work um so so there's always a negative space always and if we fail to address that i think we lose an ability to connect with people to understand what they value um to be empathetic to understand what they do know because these are not empty vessels yeah even, even if they're just out of school, um, you know what they do know that will be useful um, about the current context, about how things work, about their domain knowledge, about all those things. Plus, plus, I think if we don't if we don't talk about the negative space, um, people tend t- to think we're lying.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: No, really, really, because.
0: Or there, yeah, you're leaving a bunch of it out.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it feels like a sales job. Yeah right? You're trying to sell me on this stuff and you know I know there's stuff you're not telling me.
0: So I want to c- try to tie two of these things together. So a few minutes ago, you talked about finding the things you could work with. So that mm-hmm. sounds very Kanban, like meet them where we are or where they are. Um, and with this, I'm wondering if at an individual level, like let's say that I'm someone who's being, put, who's being asked to change or mm-hmm. in an organization that is changing. When I've gone through that, I don't think I've ever stopped to take stock of what are the things I have that will help me get through this. And also taking time to have empathy for myself and mm-hmm. thought about the fact that this is really, really hard. I'm being asked to let go of a lot of things that I hold very dearly in order to pursue something that I don't understand. And,
1: and is an unknown, yeah. You don't know if it's going to make things better, and and frankly, a lot of people have gone through forced change in organizations where it didn't end up better.
0: Yeah, and they just now assume that if they wait it out, it'll go away anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah. So a couple, a couple. Well, actually, it wasn't a couple years ago. It was last year. I went to a two-week long art class. Okay. And I was in a little bit over my head, and it was a super good. Exercise and empathy. Because I I got that feeling of, of or the experience of I understand the English words that my teacher is saying. <laughs> yes. I recognize each one of these individual English words. I could tell you what the definition of that English word is, but I have no idea what concept she's trying to convey. And I, I just had to struggle with that for about a week.
0: Okay. Right?
1: And, and midway into the second week, it was I started getting it. And it's not fun. It's not comfortable.
0: But did you have awareness of the fact that you, you were in, in that moment and that this was what all the people you work with or many of the people you work with have to go through and understand the gift that that was giving you at the time?
1: Oh, yeah, this is part of why I went. So okay. I should I should have written it off, but, <laughs> but I did um, But yeah, that was one of the one of the things I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to to swim in that um, space of, you know being a novice, being exposed to something I wasn't familiar with, having to sit with it, and not just being able to not being able to just go home. I, I I drove out to Ohio for
0: this workshop. Yeah. So, so couldn't you find a,
1: someone else's car. I couldn't just leave.
0: You find a safe remote place where you can go be <laughs> vulnerable and exposed and people aren't going to know who you are every time you walk in the room and you can slog through it just like the rest of the world has to. And that's going to make it easy. That will give you something really impactful that you can bring back to. Sure. When you're, when you show up for them.
1: Gives me empathy.
0: Yeah. That's awesome that you did that. Um. What about the changes as social process part? Because that was the second of the two lessons about change. Mm. Can you comment on that a little bit?
1: I'm thinking about what I want to say about that. Um,
0: it's a I, big I, statement.
1: It I mean, is a big statement, and and part of it is that um, you know, on one hand, I I believe that if you change the system, you're going to change the behavior, right? Just because that you know it's it, it, our behavior is always a function of the people in the environment, but change has a bunch of different social aspects to it. One is that it can shift the relationships, so that's a social thing. Learning is generally social, okay, right? So people learn through a social process. Um, our, our close associates affect how we view things. So how you work with the social networks and how you work with um, peer groups can affect how well change is received because our, our behavior is, is dramatically um, impacted by the, by the people we spend time with. Okay. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of different aspects about, about it being social.
0: So when organizations go through change, I mean, what I've seen is they'll bring in, especially, I'm going to stay with Agile because that's what I'm most familiar with. They'll sure. bring in um, some coaches. They'll start to talk about it, socialize the idea. Maybe they'll have some lunch and learns. One organization would have coaches sit in the cafeteria so people could come ask them questions. Mm-hmm. But I've never seen anybody that looked at it like this was a social movement or like there needed to be a campaign from the marketing and social perspective and, and more than just process, everybody gets so process focused.
1: Well, I don't know if I'd say if I'd call, well, maybe it is a campaign in the terms of you have to think about it and it's, uh, it, it's not over in a day.
0: I, yeah, I meant it. I meant it in a thoughtful, um, yeah, there's okay. more than just, you know, lip service. We've got to figure out a way to help these people adopt this socially
1: Yes, and that comes through interactions and conversations and making connections with people. Um, There's another really interesting story about change. um, It's from an article called Slow Ideas by Atul Gawande. And the story that I so much love from that article is about um, changing maternal health practices in a rural hospital in India which was short staffed and didn't have a lot of money and they tried several different ways several different approaches for change and they one of the ones that they wrote about in this was that they sent out um a nurse to work with the nurses in that in that particular hospital and she didn't go to judge them um she um she went and shared new practices with them and helped them address the stuff that got in the way of of um, carrying out those new practices. So it made it easier for them to do things. And at the end of it, um, they interviewed one of the nurses who worked at this at this hospital, and she said, "Well, how? how what was it like? How did it work?" And par- I'm paraphrasing, you know. She yeah. said, "Well." She, she didn't come in to judge me. She was like a friend. So, so the nurse who was already at the hospital had to change the way she was doing things. At times, it felt like more work. At times, it just felt overwhelming. But it wasn't being pushed. She wasn't being driven. She was being treated as uh, another valuable human being who had, you know, needs and and capabilities and challenges of her own. And, and that's where, that's where she was met. And that's where they were able to change the, change the, the practices dramatically.
0: So do you think that if this is what was running through my head while you were telling the story, if, if, if that nurse had come in and said, these are the things you need to change, that there's a perception then on the, part of the person being asked to change it what they're doing is wrong Mm -hmm. that they're broken somehow Mm -hmm. and that they need to correct their behavior Mm -hmm. and it's not just like here's a better way of working it's like you suck fix this now this way
1: yeah and and that is not uh that doesn't make it easier for anyone involved
0: right probably never what was intended originally either
1: no no um but if you come in and you say, "Oh well, I see these," you know, I see that there are these issues in the way, and I'm just, you know, kind of making up examples at this point. I see there's the issues in the way um, the the materials are organized for the for the birthing room. If we can organize the materials in a better way, then that will lead make it easier for certain practices to be followed. Right. So it's not just but pointing at the person and saying, you're not doing things right. Here are you new practices. It's, here's your environment. We can shift some of these things in your environment that will make it easier to do this other thing.
0: Okay. Now, with that example, you, I'm assuming that there's some kind of outcome that we're looking for, but how do we know if we're having the impact if I move these things, it might make it easier for me, but harder for somebody else. Like how does a group learn if these changes are doing what they want them to be doing?
1: Well, it's always useful to know why you're making some sort of change. Okay. So what, it, what is it that we hope will be different you know, and, and let's, let's look at the indicators that might tell us that, that, is, is, that we're having some effect on that. Um, and then you can broaden your horizons a little bit and see if, if it's affecting some downstream process, right, or some other group of people, and you get them involved. Okay. Right. I th- I mean, I, and I think that's, you know, I think that touches on the issue about local optimization, versus whole system optimization. Um, In complex systems, so we're not talking manufacturing systems, um, I think it is really um, difficult to optimize at the whole because everything touches everything and everything is entangled, right? So... So... um, you 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 change something. You try something. You see what happens, and then you make adjustments. I mean, obviously, there are some things that can be anticipated, and I think it's useful to anticipate those things. Uh, um, I worked with a group in Sweden a few years ago where they were contemplating making a change, and and it seemed like a really good idea from their perspective. So I asked them to do an exercise of saying, okay, so who is going to be affected by this? Which groups okay. and people are going to be affected by this? And then if those groups are affected, how will it ripple out from there? So, so once, you know, that group is affected, what, 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 el- what else is going to happen? And it turned out there that is. there's Izzy. <laughs> there's Izzy. She's, uh, Yeah. <laughs> So so the change seemed like it made a ton of sense because you know, it's like, who wouldn't want to release more frequently? You know, that's got to be wonderful. That's right. one of the mantras, be able to release frequently, multiple releases in a day. Yippee. But it turned out that um, what seemed to make sense from their point of view also affected their training department, their marketing department, their sales department, their yeah. customers, you know, and, and once they realized that, they said, okay, well, we need to take that into account. And we can do certain things that are going to improve our ability um, to have solid software that's ready to go at any moment. But we have to take these other things into account. So it wasn't that they stopped doing anything. To, yeah. to make those improvements. It's just they got other people involved in it.
0: So you're saying, so we should, I mean, you said optimize locally and we, and in the book you've got well, this. I,
1: like, I'm, uh, I'm not so sure I'm saying optimize locally. I, I, I think can it is. I say, like, can
0: I take another attempt at saying it? What I oh, meant to sorry, say.
1: Sorry, I keep, I don't
0: mean No, to. no, it's good. It's good. Cause it's helping me sharpen how I'm saying, cause I'm thinking something and it's not coming out right. Allow people to, to understand the best way to make changes for themselves, but understand that changing something for myself affects others as well.
1: Sure. Sure. So, so, um, was that better? Well, I think it's, I think it's more, I, 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 I'd I'd like it better. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, because you know, I, I we I think people get hung up on optimizing the whole. And if you if you're working in a complex system, I mean, you can be paralyzed by that forever. Yeah. Right. So so try something. You know, don't be you know don't be totally blind to your broader context about it. Um, try something, move forward, and that may actually spark other people to make some positive changes and and, and if you' if you're working in a, in the small, if you find out that it does make things more difficult um, in, a, in, the, in the broader system, then it's you know, it's not a big mess it 's a tiny mess
0: yeah well so the the reason that I was kind of going that route of for the the first part of it was um, I'm assuming I'm making an assumption. That you are not a huge fan of an organization just dictating how every team's going to use, let's say, Agile. They're all going to measure work this way. They're all going to be sized this way. They're all going to perform this way. And this is how everything's got to happen. And the PMO is going to enforce the process and make sure we all do it right because we have to measure everything and make sure we're all stepping to the same beat.
1: You would be correct.
0: (laughs) That's where I was trying to go with it. So. So, how much variation? You got a whole chapter in the book about allowing for variation, but how much? How how does an organization figure out how much variation is palatable? Because you don't want them all just doing whatever they want, right?
1: Um, No, that can be overwhelming, um, both in terms of cost and in terms of integration. Uh, so you, you know, you might look at what are the, you know, what is the, instead of, you know, here's the one thing we do, here's the, you know, the 10 things we, that kind of hang together and do what makes sense in your context. Um, sometimes I use boundary stories to say, we want to hear more stories like this and fewer stories like this and people figure it out in between there. Um, sometimes there are just, you know, kind of guardrails that say, um, you know, within this, this range of, of possibilities, choose the one that fits for you. Um, I, think, I think it's kind of overwhelming to have, to have com- complete freedom of choice within, because it just gets overwhelming to, to make all those choices. So having some kind of direction,
0: guardrails yeah.
1: you know, guard and direction is actually helpful. Um, plus you know you do have to in a in a big system things need to hang together right it's the interaction of the parts that determines how effective it's going to be but people with our our big old hangover of, of mechanistic thinking people extrapolate to that to say well then everything should be standardized because it will be efficient and it will be less costly but it is applying that sort of thinking to non-standard work makes it harder and more costly.
0: All right. I have a big question. So, okay. um, And I'm, and I'm trying to piece it together as I ask it. So if you can be patient with me while I do it, I'd appreciate it. Um, Back in the day when Ford, the Ford factory existed and, and Taylor was there there, you could tell people what to do and we brought them into work and told them not to think too much, just turn the wrench, do the thing, go home. Um, now that we're in an age where there is so much constant change, which, I mean, they had that as well, but now we're, we're expecting people to perform a different way. We're expecting them to come in and be creative and come up with solutions and take more responsibility. Mm-hmm. As Agile has taken root, or at least what I've seen in the interviews I've done over the last year or two, that, that the topic of change becomes a much more common focal point. And we're asking organizations to not just figure out better ways to change, but we're asking them to become students of their own digestion of changes, maybe, and their own ability of to handle like a, a whip of change, things like that. Do you think that we're kind of maybe at another tipping point where the workforce is going to have to leap into this new level of, I optimize myself to Exists in the highest performing possible way with the organisms around me or the people around me or the company around me? Like we're all going to have to be experts in that?
1: I'm thinking. Um, I, I think in some ways people are pretty adept at adapting. Most people, not all. all obviously there's, there's people at the extremes, but most people are pretty adept at ad, adapting to their social environment and, and, you know, the demands on their time and the changes in their lives and, you know, all sorts of other things. Um, but when we get to work, you know, again, we have this mechanistic history that says everything should remain pretty stable. And I think that, that gets in the way of people... Uh, behaving as fluidly as they do in their normal lives.
0: Okay. Do you think that they're conscious of it in their normal? I mean, I'm thinking like of somebody who's aware of every choice that they're making.
1: Um, I'm not sure anybody's aware of every choice that they're making. Okay. You know, uh, there are certain, certain, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I would. I, I'm not sure I buy into that particular statement. However, okay. um, I what w- I think it's closer to. There are things that we are really good at that we're so good at we're not aware we're doing them. Okay. They have just become part of our our unconscious competence. Sure. And you put us in a different context, and the context um always affects what we are able to bring to bear. And okay. So I think in a, in it, because because it may be unconscious competence we cannot we are we aren't aware to bring it yeah into a different context.
0: Okay. Okay. Sorry it was that sort was of a a, weird But question. that was
1: a, it's an interesting <laughs> question.
0: It's just um, like I notice change is such a big thing now and I feel like I I should have more like a Meta-level awareness of decisions and choices I make.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, when I when I entered the workforce, it was not uncommon for people to spend their entire work their entire working life with one company. Yeah. That was not uncommon. Um, there, there were you know managers I had who had you know they came to work for that company their first job out of college and they they were going to retire there. And, and I think that is no longer the norm. People are, are moving to different jobs every, you know, couple of years. Um, people are moving careers more fluidly than they used to. So, you know, all of all of that stuff indicates people are quite capable of making changes. Yeah. You know, it's just well, there's, you know, they, those are choices of their, changes of their choice.
0: I guess... Not- with the job thing, I there's been times when I just want to get the job. Then I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I've got a job. Now I want a job where I can contribute or where I can learn. And then to a point maybe in my career where I'm going to have a relationship with an organization where we have to have give and take with each other. Mm-hmm. And that to me would be kind of a maturation of awareness of what or how you interact with the things around you.
1: Yeah. Well, and going back to millennials, I think, you know, that's kind of where they start.
0: So they're more evolved.
1: Well, um they have di- <laughs> they have different expectations.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right. Um I feel like I went off topic a little bit with the book, but um
1: well, it's always interesting.
0: <laughs> so so the book is there for anybody who's going through changes, not just people that are experts and have changes part yeah. of the title or people like me who are just trying to get a better handle on it. Um, what is the one key thing, <laughs> if there's one specific thing you hope people have stuck in their heads at the end of this book, what is it?
1: That's a really difficult question. That's why there are seven rules. I, I know. Seven things that should be
0: stuck. <laughs> heads. They can't all be appealing. Um,
1: <laughs> well, okay. So if I had to choose one, I would say. Well, okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. These are kind of related, so I'm gonna okay. do two of them. Always strive for congruence. Okay. Because that is the, the place from which you are most likely to be able to access your creativity and your empathy. Okay. So, so always strive for congruence, and remember that you are your most important tool for change. So, use yourself. That's the seventh the seventh rule. It's the one I added because for a long time I talked about six rules. Um, so your ability to show up and connect with people and access your empathy and your creativity um, will be hugely beneficial for any sort of change effort you're involved in.
0: Okay. Cool. Um, I want to mention, can we mention some of the other stuff that you're doing before? Um, Well, first we should tell
1: managing my Frenchie.
0: Well, yes, but first of all, you can find the book on amazon.com. I'll make sure we put a link to it. You can get it in Kindle. You can get it in ebook. You can get it. Oh, those are the same things. Audiobook Mm -hmm. and paperback. Um, but, But you are an incredibly busy person and you've got all different kinds of, I was just telling my wife, like it's, She does the training in person. She does the online stuff. She's got the podcast. Are you're going to have another podcast. Yes. Um, What are, what are all the things?
1: All the things. Yeah. Well, um, I do two uh, public workshops. Okay. Um, One is called coaching beyond the team, which is centered on, you know, how you can engage other people in joint problem solving to create a better work environment. Okay. So it's related to change in some ways. But it's specific, um, specific models and, and methods that you can up, up, use to engage others in joint problem-solving in your organizations. And the other is problem-solving leadership, which I taught with Jerry Weinberg for many years, and um, he wanted it to continue, so now I'm doing it with Don Gray. Okay. And, and that is really a, an exploration of your personal leadership style and how you show up and how you can be more effective in your organization.
0: Awesome. All right, so I'll make sure we've, and these are the in-person classes. These
1: are the public ones. Um, I also have an online class for retrospectives. Okay. You can find it estherderby.teachable.com. And Johanna Rothman and I have recently been working on, um, on making some online classes for managers based on our, the book we wrote together in 2005, which is Behind Closed Doors, Secrets of Great Management.
0: I would imagine that that's going to be the most awesome online class ever created.
1: (laughs) Well, um, I I hope so, but uh, we're, we're having fun with it. We are, of course, it's not going as fast as we thought it would go because we both have other stuff going on. And, um, but yeah, so we're, we've got, we've got one out there now, which is for on one and one, doing an effective one-on-one meeting. Okay. Which is again about connecting with people. Yeah. Um, And uh, we're in the process of doing one on solving systemic issues or working systemic issues because a lot of them you can't solve, but you can work them. Okay. So that one should be out sometime this fall.
0: Awesome. And the podcasting.
1: The podcasting. Um, I do a podcast with Victor Sesson called Tea and the Law of Raspberry Jam, which is a reference to one of Jerry Weinberg's um, bits of wisdom. And we talk a lot about uh, working in organizations. So we did, um, we did a series on, on questions that coaches use. We did a series on um, um, coaching, uh, coaching teams that are, in, in air quotes, resisting. Um, so that's, a, that's a super fun. I always have fun talking to Victor. And I'm starting a new one called Agile Change. Which is just going to be talking to people about how they bring change in their organizations.
0: Okay, and that's so, sort of in support of the book, I'm imagining. Well,
1: you know, that what I was sitting there thinking about. Well, what do I want to talk about? And I want to talk about change. So, yeah, awesome. it's not. It's not. Um, it's not going to be me reading the book. It's going to be me talking to other people uh, about how they have how they have um, made changes in their organization, and hopefully, we'll all learn from it.
0: I'm excited to hear you interview folks. I think that's gonna be well, really cool.
1: Yeah, that's a coming coming this fall.
0: Cool. All right. And they can go to Esther to find all this good stuff.
1: All this good stuff.
0: <laughs> all right. And what about the Twitter?
1: Uh at Esther Derby.
0: That's nice and easy. All right. Thank you very much. And thank Izzy for spending some time with us as well. <laughs>
1: yeah, <Izzy. laughs> yes. She's she's quite when when I when I moved here and took her to the to my new vet up here. Yeah. They just looked at her and said, this dog has a very, very high self-esteem.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: She's quite assertive.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, this was great. Thank you very yeah. much.
1: It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm.